Thanks, Andrew. As Andrew said, I've known him for a long time and known his dad. Many of you probably know Dave. Where is Dave? There he is. Okay. That's, uh, that's Andrew's dad. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and especially to talk to preachers. I read a story recently by a guy who uh, has spent his career in teaching. His name is Kevin Van Hooser. And Van Hooser says that one of the students at uh, his seminary came in and talked to him and said, you know, I'm, I'm worried about my grades. Please don't tell me that I'm not smart enough to be a professor. And Van Hooser thought about it a bit. He was kind of irritated by the implications that somehow going into preaching was less than being a professor. And he said, son, I've looked at your grades, and I think you might be smart enough to be a professor, but you're not smart enough to be a preacher. <laughs> and uh, he went on to talk about the wide variety of issues that preachers have to master and uh, that they are looked to. And I have great respect for those of you that preach. I preach for full-time for six years, right after I finished at uh, Harding Graduate School at the time, back in the mid-70s. I went to Atlanta and preached at the Moreland Avenue ch there, Church there for the next six years. And I have a tremendous respect for all of you. The only time I felt good during that six years was Sunday night. And maybe you understand that. Sunday evening, I'd go home and I'd feel free from responsibility. Monday morning, I woke up and it was there again. And just kept going right on through the next Sunday night. Uh, so a, a teacher's life in many ways is easier because we end a semester and then get uh, long breaks in between. I know you're familiar with the Gospel of John and familiar with this story, but you may not know the correct ending to it. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 8 <clears throat> was uh, walking along and they had found a woman caught, caught in adultery and brought her out uh, to see if, if, uh, if he would uh, participate in stoning her. And Jesus said, let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. And this little old woman came out of the crowd and started picking up stones and throwing them just as fast as she could. And Jesus looked at her and said, Mom, sometimes you really upset me. <laughs> That's a story for your Catholic friends. Uh, the real uh, story of the woman caught in adultery. I love the Gospel of John. Uh, I've been teaching now, this is my 33rd year, and I taught the Gospel of Mark uh, and others of the Synoptic Gospels during the first 15 years, but Mark was kind of my bread and butter. I probably taught it every year that I've been at uh, Harding School of Theology. But about 15 years ago, I started teaching John and I thought, oh, I can't believe I let this go all these years. I have truly loved teaching the Gospel of John. It is, of course, unique in its uh, perspective on Jesus. The synoptics are called that because they have a similar viewpoint towards Jesus. Not that there are not differences between them, but they give us a huge amount of overlapping material. Terry pointed out some of the differences uh, in the Gospel of John in, uh, in his very fine presentation earlier. And there are many other differences. John seems to take a very different viewpoint. Uh, one scholar, a guy named Paul Anderson, says that what we really have as far as Jesus is concerned is a bioptic view. We have the synoptics looking from over here. We have John looking from over here. And so we really have two uh, kind of fund fundamental views to bring together there. And I have loved dealing with John for the past 15 years. And in fact, uh, in becoming dean last summer, I had to give up a lot of my teaching. I've gone from eight courses a year to three courses a year. And it was very difficult to decide what to get up, give up. And I did come down to a point where I had to say, Mark or John? 
which one am I going to give to someone else, an adjunct, and which one am I going to keep for myself? I kept John, uh, despite the fact that I probably taught Mark every year I've been there, but I just enjoy John that much. John um, is probably the tightest gospel in terms of themes. And my topic is important themes in the Gospel of John. John is probably, of the four gospel writers, the one who has the strongest, clearest, narrowest idea of what he wants to cover in the life of Jesus. And therefore, for example, he only ends up with uh, seven of Jesus' miracles. Uh, with none of his parables, with large amounts of his teaching, but teaching that, uh, that differs from most of that which is recorded by the synoptics. He gives us uh, fresh and new insight into Jesus and who he was. John, as you know, is the one gospel writer that gives us a clear purpose statement. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, if you want to turn to that. At the end of chapter 20, right before John strikes back up again and gives us a kind of epilogue, what looks like it might be the end of the book, and if we didn't have the epilogue, we wouldn't have missed it. And, and that's pretty much by definition what an epilogue is. People write epilogues to various books all the time in antiquity and in the present. But an epilogue is sort of after the climax, after the, uh, the final ending of the book. And there at the end of John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, he tells us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And in that little statement there, John has done beyond, there's a little bit of a purpose statement at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. There is uh, no purpose statement in Matthew or in Mark, but John has given us a very clear statement of what his intent is at near the end of his gospel, right before that prologue, that he's made this selection from the material. He later tells us at the end of the epilogue in chapter 21 that Jesus did so many things that if he were, could record them all, that all the books in the world wouldn't hold them. So John makes it very clear that he has been selective in what he's presented and that that selection has been guided by that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We've turned to that purpose statement, probably everyone uh, in this room, very frequently. We could wish it were a little bit sharper. and We could wish we knew exactly the original wording in the purpose statement. There is one letter that makes somewhat of a difference when John says, these, uh, these are written that you may believe, he uses a form of the Greek verb believe there that is uh, in the subjunctive mood, but most importantly, it is not clear whether it is an aorist verb or whether it is a present tense verb, and the difference is one single letter. And that is that if you add a sigma near the end of that word, if it's pistu sete, then it's aorist. If it's pistu ete, without that sigma, then it's a present. And our manuscript evidence on this is fairly evenly divided. It's difficult for us to decide whether it's an aorist subjunctive or a present subjunctive. We ask what difference would that make? It might make a difference, and many have thought it made a difference, as to whether John is saying that you might come to believe, which would be the aorist tense of that subjunctive verb, or that you might continue to believe, which would be the present tense of that subjunctive verb. 
Unfortunately, I don't think we can decide for sure whether that sigma belongs there or not. So I don't think we can decide for sure, and we could spend the rest of the day talking about that, we won't, uh, whether or not it's an aorist verb or a present verb there. But there are a growing number of scholars who think even if we could, it wouldn't answer that question for us. That is, it would not tell us whether John is saying that you may continue to believe or whether John is saying that you may come to believe. The difference between the two would be what? What do you think it be, would be different if he said that you may continue to believe or that you may come to believe? That's right. Is John evangelizing that you may come to believe, or is he writing for edification that you may continue to believe? Now, one thing we can't doubt is that John's gospel has been used effectively for both purposes for nearly two millennia, and it can be used effectively for both purposes. And it might be that to even ask that question is to ask something that John is not trying to answer and that he deliberately writes his gospel so that uh, either answer could be correct. That is, that he's writing to help people to continue to believe who already believe, and in trying to help people come to believe who don't have belief yet. There are occasional telltale signs in the Gospel of John that might lead us to think that he's writing to help people to continue to believe especially perhaps in a situation uh, in which they are being challenged by Jews of that time period who are saying, this is not the Messiah. The one you claim is the Messiah is not, and who are bringing pressure on these Christians who I would agree with Terry may very well be up in the 90s or perhaps in the 80s. I would, I would date it sometime perhaps in the 80s or 90s. Look at the beginning of chapter 11, just as one of the possible telltale signs that at least some of the people he was writing for were Christians. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Beth Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Apparently, John thinks that those he is writing for will recognize that there's a Mary who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and uh, wiped it with his hair, but he doesn't tell that story until chapter 12. So if you think John is writing only for unbelievers, it seems rather odd that he would tell a story that we would assume most unbelievers had not heard and then treat it as though they'd already heard this story and not come along and tell the story until chapter 12. So I think there are some telltale signs here and there that might suggest that at least to some extent John had in mind a Christian audience. But that's not to say he doesn't have a non-Christian audience in mind at the same time. Uh, to give you an example of this, in modern times, a lot of us use apologetic books that have been put together to help to uh, lead people to faith, and often those apologetic books are addressed to unbelievers pretty explicitly in the preface of the book. But I would suggest to you that the people who read most apologetic books the most, most of the people who buy them, and use them are in fact believers. And those apologetic books work both to undergird and reinforce the Christian's faith and to build faith in the non-Christian. And so both and certainly seems a legitimate possibility here. Now you should have received a handout of just a few pages. Uh, when I teach the Gospel of John, one of the first things I do in class is hand out about 20 pages similar to this that have every reference to a number of these items that are referred to here. 
That is, every occurrence of words for life, of words for death, of words for believe, of words for witness, of words for truth, of words for light and darkness and so forth. But that made a pretty good size handout to think about uh, passing out here. So I carved it down to uh, what seemed to me to be some representative examples of these major themes in the Gospel of John. But I've given you in each case kind of how many references there are to these particular ideas just to indicate to you that these are major themes in his 21 chapters that he talks about these particular ideas so frequently. I want to begin with just echoes of John chapter 20, verse 31. That is, John says, I'm writing that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have come to have life in his name. Now, anyone who has read John very well or very thoroughly up to John chapter 20 and verse 31 has seen perhaps 25 or 30 echoes of that particular statement prior to getting to it. And I've collected just a few of them here, beginning with chapter 3 and verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or the famous John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. You notice that each of these references we've referred to so far both have the idea of believing in Jesus and through believing coming to life. Notice, by the way, in verse 36, that the first clause says whoever believes has eternal life, and the next clause says whoever disobeys the Son will not have life. A good indication that when John talks about belief, he doesn't simply mean just acknowledging a set of facts, but he means a trusting, obedient kind of belief. Verse 24 Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. In the Gospel of John, not only does he refer to believe 98 times, as Terry has already pointed out, and I'm glad our number agreed on this particular occurrence, uh, but he also uses the words for life and death, both noun forms to live and the noun, uh, um, verb forms to live and the noun death, and verb forms to die and the noun die. He uses all these words 66 times. And this brings up another feature about John that we could spend some time with today, um, and that is his uh, preference for what is commonly called dualism or contrast. So if he talks about life, he also talks about death. If he talks about truth, he also talks about falsehood or lies. And so there are constantly these series of contrast throughout the Gospel of John and contrast that he finds in the teachings of Jesus because you find that many of these are quotations of the teachings of Jesus. I put quotes around all the items that are quoted here. Most of these are from Jesus. Occasionally you would recognize in context there's a reference to a quotation from uh, John the Baptist. But here the contrast from death to life. I won't read all these passages. I'll leave you to read them. But just to underscore that John's gospel most fundamentally is about undergirding or creating faith. And by faith, he means more than just mental assent. He means uh, trust and dependence and obedience in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and that his ultimate purpose in doing that is to lead us out of spiritual death and into spiritual life.
Now that life is talked about both as a present possession and as something that one will receive in the future. And John can talk about it as a present possession in that we have qualitatively already moved from death to a different kind of life. As Jesus says in John 10, I come that they may have life and may have it more abundantly. Now, I don't think there's anything in John's gospel that would indicate that that life that we enter into this side of the grave cannot be forfeited. I don't think that, that the idea that John has is kind of a Calvinistic idea of entering into eternal life and not being able to forfeit it. But he does say that we've already entered into that spiritual life that will ultimately come to fruition and fullness at the time that Jesus returns. A related theme to this emphasis on belief is John's emphasis on witness. And here we are looking at five different Greek words, a couple of different nouns, a couple of different verbs, talking about bearing witness, or someone being a witness, or testifying. Uh, all of these are related terms that basically come from the same Greek root. And notice that the idea of being a witness appears 54 times, and that's primarily because John, since he wants to build faith or undergird faith, rolls out a variety of witnesses, beginning with John the Baptist, the first mentioned witness, and going through to a variety of other witnesses, including Scripture as a witness, uh, including God as a verbatim witness from the sky, uh, and um, including a wide variety of witnesses. Start with chapter 1, verse 7, and this is John the Baptist, the first use of this witness term in the text. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. That is, John was a witness, there's one of these words, to testify. So there's the noun form and the verb form. And if you look at the underlying Greek forms, it's very clear. It's more like he said, John came as a witness to witness. Uh, the, the words are very much overlapping in their form in the underlying Greek text. Now this is an opportunity to underscore something else about the Gospel of John, and that is that in the Gospel of John, most of the major themes are introduced in the first 18 verses. One of the things that's really unique about John is his prologue. We have a brief four-verse prologue uh, to the Gospel of Luke in which he says that many have undertaken uh, to write the story of that which has been fulfilled among us, and that he himself, having investigated with the eyewitnesses, the ministers of the word, has decided to write a reliable account for you, most excellent Theophilus. But that little uh, four-sentence, I mean four-verse sentence, which is, by the way, one of the most eloquent sentences constructed within the New Testament, and it is uh, patterned after the way that Greek biographers or Greek historians would often begin their works, uh, showing a great deal of eloquence. But it doesn't tell us a great deal about Luke's purpose and Luke's themes. It does tell us he wants to tell the story of what had been fulfilled among us so that it has Old Testament roots. And, wants, and it tells us that he wants to write that story reliably and he wants to write that story in order, although it doesn't tell us whether the order he has in mind is chronological order or some other kind of order. But it's nothing like as revealing as John's prologue. The first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are a marvelously constructed prologue. Some have even been so impressed with its poetic quality that they've tried to argue that John is basically taking an early Christian hymn or poem and adapting it. They have to say adapting because there are parts of it that don't fit their ideas 
about what this uh, a poem or a song is supposed to have looked at. So usually they scraped out certain elements in their attempt to reconstruct, and I'm not terribly impressed with that idea. What I am impressed with is that everyone thinks that John's prologue is very carefully constructed, very eloquent despite its very simple language, which is another thing about John. If you, if you take Greek, the first reading that you'll do after you finish your elementary grammar is either 1 John or the Gospel of John. And the reason is that those are the simplest Greek in the New Testament. They are the see, look, dot, look, see, spot, run Greek of the New Testament. But on the other hand, extraordinarily profound. One, a common statement about the Gospel of John that I would uh, suspect that a large percentage of you have seen, because it may be in... Uh, 10 to 20 percent of the commentaries out there, it may already be in David Leip's commentary, is the statement that the Gospel of John is a pool that a child can wade in and an elephant can swim in. If David hadn't included it, I know he's seen it. He's seen it a lot of times. And it's true. The Gospel of John, on the one hand, is very simple. But the more you plunge the depths of the Gospel of John, it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And so anyone can read it very simply, but many scholars, there is a, a habit in New Testament scholarship in which someone does their dissertation on the Gospel of John, and then they spend the rest of their lives publishing and thinking about the Gospel of John, and they hardly comment about anything else. Maybe the Epistles of John, maybe the Book of Revelation, but mostly the Gospel of John. The largest commentaries up until recently that were published were on the Gospel of John. Gospel of John was the first book of the New Testament to produce two and three volume commentaries. Now David tells me he's already got 550,000 words. 500 pages. Yes, he's got 500 pages and he's covered through chapter 14. And so it sounds like he's in trouble if he's looking at that as a one-volume commentary. But that is not unusual on the Gospel of John. Um, and uh, people would have said, oh, the Gospel of John's got all the longest commentaries up until a few years ago. Does anyone know what the longest commentary is now? Some of you may have used it. It's Craig Keener on the book of Acts. Four 1,000-page volumes. So if you want to know more, it, you do not want to know as much about the book of Acts as he will tell you. I'm almost certain you don't. You don't have the time or the patience to read. It's actually about 4,500 pages total, uh, published by, if I'm not mistaken, Zondervan. So there may never be a lot. I, in fact, I saw a thing on Facebook uh, that they were showing uh, Craig Keener's forthcoming commentary on the book of Jude. It was a stack of paper about like this. <laughs> it was obviously a way of mocking Keener uh, for his uh, prolific writing style. But the Gospel of John has a lot of very long commentaries and is a book you can go very deeply into. An elephant can swim in it, but a child can wade in it. And the first 18 verses, my, my problem with John, and I think this is a problem, I think there is a problem with preaching John. And I don't know if Jay will discuss this later, but uh, the problem I always had with preaching John, and I even have it with teaching John, is that John's themes are so narrow and well-focused, which is a great strength of the book, and he rolls most of them out in his preface, which is a great strength of the book. But what I tend to do is I get into his preface, his prologue, which is 18 verses, and about halfway through the class, I say, okay, now we're going to chapter 1 and verse 19. And by that time, I've ruined the rest of the book because I've already taught it all. I just start at the beginning, and these words come up, life, light, belief, witness, 
truth. And then I go off saying, now here's what John does with that. Here's what John does with this. Here's what John does with that. And that is a problem with preaching John. If you preach the Gospel of John from start to finish, you are probably going to get some complaints, especially if it's a very long series, that you're being repetitious. And your response to that could be, well, John's repetitious. And that would be an accurate response, but it probably won't help the people listening to you. They'll still think, oh, we covered that, didn't we, a few weeks ago? Because John does keep coming back over and over again to the same points. And wanting to undergird our belief, he wants to call forth witnesses. Chapter 1 and verse 15 is another case of John the Baptist's witness. Uh, chapter 1 and verse 34 as well. Now look at chapter 4 and verse 39. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. And then in chapter 5, Jesus himself, in the second half of that chapter, rolls out a series of witnesses. Verse 32, there is another who testifies on my, that is, Jesus' behalf, and I know that his testimony to me is true. Verse 36, but I have greater testimony than John's, the works the Father has given me to complete, the very works I am doing, they testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has testified on my behalf. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. You search the scriptures, verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they who testify on my behalf. And so Jesus here, especially in the last half of chapter 5, calls up a series of witnesses, a series of testimony to advocate who he is. And then in chapter 15, as, as you are aware, in 14, 15, and 16, he's talking about going away. It's the end of his life, and he's having that lengthy conversation that Terry talked about with his disciples. And three different times, or maybe four times in those three chapters, he says, if I go away, then I'll send the Spirit. The Spirit may be, it may be translated an advocate or a counselor. It's the underlying word paraclete, parakletos, and we're not sure exactly how to translate that. In this translation, it's the advocate. When the advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who's coming from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You, speaking to the disciples, also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. And then John, in chapter 19 and 35, writes of himself when he's at the foot of the cross and sees blood and water coming out from Jesus' body. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. And then at the end of the book, speaking of the beloved disciple, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. That's a very odd little verse, by the way, because um, it's, it's easy enough to argue that John could refer to himself as this is the disciple who testifies to this. That is, refer to himself in the third person. When I first, uh, when I was going through college and was going through graduate school, we were all taught that in a term paper you don't say I. Instead, you say this writer or something like that. You speak of yourself in third person, and that's a way of kind of deferring emphasis off of yourself. Now we just say I. I mean, it, the standard practice these days is to just go ahead and write even formal papers in the first person. We also occasionally used we, and it's clear that Paul uses we sometimes when 
He basically means I. He very frequently uses we, the first person plural, as a substitute for the first person singular. And uh, various speakers, I mean, you hear people do this all the time. The odd thing here is that it's done in both ways. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written him, third person. And then this is the oddest part. We know that his testimony is true. There, there is very old, um, back, back from within a few hundred years of Jesus, suggestion that perhaps this hand is from the elders of the Ephesian church who are saying in a sentence near the end of the book, uh, we want to testify that we know the truth of the things that John the Apostle has written, but that is an ongoing discussion. And there are people who argue, no, there's a way to understand John writing this very sentence. And uh, it's kind of like the argument about whether Moses wrote the description of his own death or not. There are ways to argue for it and ways to argue against it. And this is kind of an odd verse. But the main point here is simply that witness, testimony, testify, bear witness, those words occur 54 times in the book out of 21 chapters. And then truth. There are three different Greek words for uh, true and truth and to speak truly uh, 62 times. And here again, beginning with the first 18 verses, the word of the Lord became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory the glory is of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Or verse 17 of the prologue. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip the rest of those references, but just to say that the, the words for truth and the words for lying in contrast to truth and the words for to bear witness, and the words for life, and the words for believe, all of those go together to emphasize the point that John makes in his statement of purpose, that he's writing in order that we might either come to believe or continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing that, we might have life in his name. Then the very first verses of the gospel where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to talk about creation, and he says that everything was created uh, through the Word, that Jesus was involved in the creation Verse 3, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that hath been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He moves very quickly from Jesus as the word being in the beginning to creation, and to creation involving light and closely associated with light, is light, uh, with life is light. The, uh, the ancients didn't know about uh, photosynthesis and, and those uh, particular things that we discovered in more modern times about how light helps to create life in plants. But the ancients knew full well that if you covered up a plant and it got only darkness, it died. And if you left it open and it could get light, it lived. They didn't have to understand photosynthesis to understand that there's a strong connection between light and life. And John takes that connection and he makes it throughout his gospel, often using the concept of light and darkness, where you could almost just equally substitute the concepts of life and death. Jesus came that by believing in him, we might come out of death and into life. And he came that by believing in him, we might come out of darkness 
and into the light. And from the very earliest verses in the Gospel of John, he frequently talks about light. And uh, let me emphasize here, down in chapter uh, 9 and verse 5, again, we'll, we'll skip most of these verses, but Jesus here says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And right after he says that, he performs a miracle. And what is that miracle? Yes, he opens the eyes of a blind man. And so, in, in fact, we could have said the same thing about life. The concept of life is tremendously illustrated not only by creation in the earliest verses where it talks about God creating the world. And of course, the concept of light is woven into Genesis 1 and the account of the creation. And it's picked up on there. Uh, not only could we say this about life, that life was at creation at the beginning, and then when Jesus raises a man from the dead, right before that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. A way of illustrating in a physical way going from spiritual darkness to spiritual life, or spiritual death to spiritual life. And now here in the case of the blind man in John chapter 9, a way of illustrating in a physical way what he does for us in a spiritual way. Before we see Christ, before we come to believe in Christ, uh, we live in darkness and we stumble around as though we are blind. And then Jesus gives us sight. And so right before he heals this blind man, he says, I am the light of the world. Light and darkness and the words associated with those ideas are used 39 times out of the 20, 21 chapters. That's almost twice per chapter. This seemed like a good place to insert the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is a unique feature of John's Gospel. The other Gospels don't, they do have statements where Jesus says, I am, just without a predicate, as uh, uh, when he is walking on the water and in the storm and the disciples see him and they think it's a ghost and he says, do not be afraid. And then he says, I am, ego a me. But what they don't have are any places where Jesus says, I am, ego a me, and then follows it with a metaphor that constitutes the predicate. And there are seven times, probably not accidental. John's big on seven. He has seven signs, as uh, Terry pointed out. Of course, the book of Revelation is full of the number seven. And by the way, there are plenty of examples of the greatness of the number seven just in ancient culture in general. Uh, there are people who are not Christians and even people who are not Jews who extol the great values of the number seven because it was widely believed as an important number uh, in ancient cultures, uh, Greek and Roman and Jewish and Christian. But these seven uh, I am statements with metaphorical predicates. Of, of these, three of them are said in connection with miracles, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and then he produces bread to feed 5,000 people. Where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and then he opens the eyes of a blind man. And where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. There's enough of those to make some scholars wonder if every one of the seven miracles John has chosen has a symbolic spiritual meaning. And that might very well be true. We could spend time going through those seven. I think in some cases you have to push it just a little bit to make it work. But it's certainly possible that John has, and, and this is one of the places that uh, elephants swim in the Gospel of John, and that is to decide how far to push the nuances, the connotations, the possible symbolic meanings of various aspects of the Gospel of John. And this will be one of those, how symbolic 
or the miracles. Not suggesting they didn't happen, but that he chose each of these because of their symbolic value. And the major clue to that would be these I am statements in connection with three of the major miracles. Then there are three of these statements that connect with not John's parables, but his allegories. I am the gate for the sheep and I am the good shepherd both occur in the first part of chapter 10 where Jesus tells the allegory about uh, being the good shepherd and us being the sheep. And then uh, down in chapter 15, verses 1 and 5, I am the true vine, where Jesus tells the allegory of uh, the vine and the branches. The only one of these uh, signs, uh, these uh, I am statements, that doesn't stand in relationship to a miracle or to an allegory is in chapter 14 and verse 6. During that conversation Jesus is having with his disciples the night before uh, his death, the night he was arrested, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these I am statements point to the same thing, and that is it is through Jesus and through believing in Jesus that we come to have a spiritual life in his name. And they're just different ways of saying the same thing. The bread of life, the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine, all of those have to do with, with the sustaining of life and the granting of life. And it seems there's essentially a common denominator between all seven of the I am statements. Uh, just a few more minutes. So we'll take a, a dash at the pre, Jesus' preexistence in John, and that is simply to say John is the gospel, of course, that begins, in the beginning was the Word. John is the only gospel that explicitly and unquestionably says that Jesus has existed throughout time, and has existed with God the Father, and existed with God the Father before he came to earth. There are places in the Synoptic Gospels where it can be argued, and there's a recent book by a British scholar named Simon Gathercole, who argues from the Synoptic Gospels that there are indications there that Jesus pre-existed his birth that he was with God. Statements, uh, for example, some of the ones he emphasized would be statements where Jesus says, uh, it was for this that I came out. When he's talking about going to other places and preaching besides Capernaum. And Gathercole wants to argue there that when he says I came out, he means to say I came out from my existence with God. I was with God and I came out in the sense of coming unto earth. Uh, maybe there are implications in the other Gospels. I certainly believe that all the other Gospel writers believe Jesus did exist with God before he came to earth. But I'm simply saying that if you want that explicit and undeniable, just straight out, repeatedly in the text, you'll find it in John from verse 1 through these various other occurrences. For example, carrying all the way down to chapter 17, his prayer before he's arrested. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had in your presence before the world existed. So the existence of Christ with God before he came to earth is repetitively declared in John's Gospel. And then just a... A final brief word, uh, most of this I'll leave you to look at yourself, but uh, the Jews. John is different from the other Gospels in repeatedly referring to the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. And throughout the Gospel there are 71 times that the Jews are referred to. And Terry indicated that John lived in a situation where he was alienated from the Jews. He was a Jew himself, but he was alienated from the Jews. Jesus often presents himself with similar language and similar comments. He talks to the Jews as though they were someone else, another people, 
besides himself. He's a Jew. All the, the apostles are Jews. John was a Jew. It's a very Jewish book in many ways. And yet the Jews in the Gospel of John seem to be the enemy. And that is a situation that probably grew in intensity, uh, as Terry suggested, after A.D. 70, after the destruction of the temple. This, the clarity of this division and antagonism between the two groups probably grew. Now, there are many liberal scholars who believe that uh, John has read things into the story of Jesus that didn't exist in Jesus' time, that only existed in John's time. I don't think that's accurate. But I do think it may be very correct that John is interested, especially in this antagonism with the Jews and the antagonism of the Jews, partly because of things going on in his own time. And that may be a lot of the reason that he picks up. He is the only gospel writer to tell us, and on three different occasions, he uses a word that means cast out of the synagogue to tell us that the Jews were casting people out of the synagogues because of their belief in Jesus. Now, do I believe that was happening in the time of Jesus? I certainly do. John says it, and I think that's accurate. Uh, there are liberal scholars who will say that wasn't happening in the time of Jesus. This is something John's writing into it from his own standpoint. But my view would be, no, he's not creating it, but he is specially interested in it. And he's specially interested in it because he's the last of the gospel writers writing and because the level of the antagonism between the Jews and the Christians has steadily risen. And uh, he feels the need to perhaps deal with that more than some of the other gospel writers do. So I think it has something to do with his selection of things to tell us about the Jews and with the language that he uses for the Jews, even though he himself is a Jew. And there are good Jews portrayed in the text, uh, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, by the way, you want a little uh, a sermon that's very interesting Follow Nicodemus from chapter 3, where he seems to have very little faith, down to the resurrection, and follow him along. And see that incident in between where Nicodemus is in uh, with the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, we've got to go after this man, and Nicodemus steps in, sort of tentatively, but defends Jesus. He seems to be on a trajectory to come to faith. Whether he ever made it, we can't say. Um, but he certainly seems to be heading in that direction. And I think that John tells that story deliberately because he's trying to reinforce faith and he's trying to create faith. And so he picks up this, these little vignettes about this man that we otherwise don't hear of, but we hear of in the Gospel of John uh, because he's trying to stir faith within us. Well, we'll stop here and take a few questions. Yes, sir. Why do you think, I really don't know, so I'm just going to throw this out. Why do you think that John explicitly emphasized the, the pre-human uh, existence of Jesus and the others are only implicitly or just sporadically commenting on That's a good question. And, you know, I don't know that I have a good clear answer to why he would pick up on that because it, it's not only are there some things Jesus says that can be picked up on and could have been picked up on by the synoptic writers, but even John the Baptist says in his comment about Jesus, I think I have this one on page three. This is all the way back in chapter one. No, I skipped it. John says that he had told them that Jesus ranked before him because he existed before him. Which means that even John the Baptist makes a remark about Jesus because we know that physically John the Baptist existed before Jesus. But John the Baptist says, Jesus is superior to me 
because he existed before me, which can only be a veiled kind of reference to Jesus' pre-existence. I think that could be the case, that, that one of the concerns that he might have, and again, this would fit well with him writing in the 90s, is that it does seem from the epistles that there is some what's often called proto or incipient Gnosticism. Your Bible class loves it, by the way, to use terms like proto-Gnosticism, incipient Gnosticism. <laughs> They have the foggiest idea of what you're talking about. It's like saying apocalyptic and they think you mean Acapulco. Um, <laughs> you have to be careful about that language, you know, Bible classes. But, but that is, the beginnings of Gnosticism seem to be there in the 90s. And there are those who think that the Gospel of John is specifically working to deny some of that stuff. Even when John tells the story about Jesus having his side punctured and blood and water coming out, there it is to say he is not uh, docetic, another big term. That is, he didn't just look like a human being, he was a human being. And when you punch him, the blood comes out like it does for other human beings. There were Gnostics, by the way, I think it's the uh, Acts of John, I think that's the right book, that says that when Jesus walked around, he didn't make any prints in the ground. And the reason was that uh, he was a ghost. He just looked like a human being. Yes, that he just seemed to be. Yes, sir, Terry. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So that could be a contrast with, uh, and, and that too would fit with the later date for John. The, the one thing I'm pretty convinced of is that John, because I, I do accept the words of Irenaeus and others that locate John in Ephesus. Um, if John was in Ephesus when he was writing the book, I don't think it could be as early as the 60s because at that time Paul writes to Timothy as though Timothy is sort of the highest ranking uh, person there. He's an emissary of the Apostle Paul. If John had been there, I find it a little hard to have Paul writing and saying, Timothy, you see about the elders and you make sure everything's on the right path. He might have at least said, get some help from John. So I, I don't think John was there in the 60s, despite, I think you mentioned there are those who think he might have gone there in the 40s. I don't think he was there by the 60s, so I think it's got to be at least 70s, 80s, 90s, and I guess I'm inclined towards the 90s, like Kerry was. What else? Wow, I answered all the questions? Yes, sir. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that he went to Ephesus as early as the 70s, potentially, simply because I think we've got to get past Paul's death and Timothy being there, which I take to be the mid to late 60s. Um, but then exactly when he gets exiled to Patmos, most, most contemporary scholars lean towards a late date for Revelation, that is, a date in the time of Domitian, rather than in a date connected with Nero or shortly after Nero. So if we do that, Domitian gets us up to 96. And so uh, about mid-90s. Uh, the, the, a problem that we have with Domitian is we don't have overt 
clear information of Nero persecuting Christians in Asia Minor other than what we have in the book of Revelation. Now that's sufficient for me to read the book of Revelation and to say, well, it seems pretty clear here that this is coming from the emperor down. And it certainly fits Domitian's character. We have a lot of information about his character and about his thinking of himself as a, as a god and wanting to be worshipped. All of that fits. We just What we would like to have, in addition to the book of Revelation that we don't have, is some information about him sort of sponsoring persecutions in Asia Minor. Yes, Henry. If, uh, if someone was thinking about planning a sermon series for John or sort of beginning that, uh, what advice would you give to someone as they think about preaching that in a congregational context? Uh, we've talked a lot about themes, but as they're sort of planning out what they would want to highlight, what would, what would be some things you would suggest? Yeah, I guess, and I may differ from a lot of you on this, I, I would not... I would not preach through any gospel one story at a time. Uh, if you're going to do that, I'd give long breaks in between because I just don't think contemporary audiences like a six to nine to 12 month series. <laughs> and that's what it would be for me if I were to preach every story through. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily try to pick everything. I'd try to pick selected representations. And in fact, a series I would enjoy doing would be a series on themes of John. Um, or even a series on the I Am statements which take up several of the themes and do them that way. Um, and I would encourage you if you're going to preach out of John, read in the introduction to Donald Carson's commentary on John, which by the way, I think that commentary is recommended in our list, and it's an excellent commentary on the, on the Gospel of John. But Carson is a scholar who's done a lot of preaching, and he gives some advice about preaching. He has a specific section. And the thing that I agree with him very much on there is he says, be careful in preaching out of John that you don't just become repetitious. Because again, John is so sharply focused and he keeps coming to these same subjects over and over and over again. And that would mean perhaps that you will in your preaching and what might be a great strength of John might not look to your audience like a great strength on your behalf. When you start sounding like you're saying the same thing three weeks from when you said it before and you keep bringing it back up. I think it's a little tricky, and I would do it by being selective, either selective stories or selective themes, and then give a break and come back to it. I do think John ought to be preached out of a lot. Yes, Alan. I can't. I can't recall. I'm not very good on my. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think there is such a legend, but I. Not very good on my legends. Yeah. I think I think that you know by the reason I ever never looked into that is I think it's a late and pretty historically not worthwhile legend. Yes. I think the word glory is an important word, and it's one I give a little attention to at the end. Um, and we do have the notion of God's glory that is demonstrated by Jesus, but we also have the notion of Jesus' glory. Like, for example, chapter 2 and verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory and his disciples reveal, uh, believed in him. That is, uh, there's a lot of attention on God's glory and Jesus' glory. But in the second half of the book, beginning especially with uh, chapter 11 or 12, 
Glory is used in a very unusual way in John, and that is that what you might think is brings glory to Jesus uh, are his great miracles, healing a blind man, raising a man from the dead, or the spectacular way he teaches, and those do bring glory to Jesus, and John does talk about that. But beginning in the second half of the book, he starts using the idea of Jesus being glorified more and more to talk about the cross, which seems the very opposite of Jesus' glorification. That hanging on the cross, being crucified, being killed, is Jesus being glorified. And that seems to turn upside down our ideas about glorification. But it's so much so that uh, a a very uh, influential, and if you read much in the Gospel of John, you will see this, a very influential kind of structure of John was suggested by a a scholar named C.H. Dodd uh, back in the first half or maybe middle of the 20th century who said the first half of the book of, of John is the book of signs focusing on Jesus' miraculous signs. The second half he called the book of glory. Even though it was fundamentally about Jesus' death, that was the book of glory. But of course the glorification not only includes his death, but also his resurrection and exaltation. But glory, Jesus being glorified is used in an unusual way in the second half of the book. Doug. There we go. There's some discussion about maybe he stole it from somebody, but it's not examined. That's the earliest reference. Okay, so that's the earliest reference to it. Well, th- thank you very much. I think we'll get to go eat. <laughs> <laughs>